Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 8. Your microphone's kind of messing up, so I'm just... The mic is? Yeah, it just sounds weird. Okay. Uh, is it shorting in and out or something? Well, sorry. We're in the 8th chapter. There's 13 verses here. It's uh, somewhat transitional, but we come now to the 7th seal being broken. You've been with us in the past, and now we've been covering the, uh, the scroll. And the 7 seals that were on it being opened, and each time one was opened, something happened. And so uh, then there was a, a uh, pause after 7, the 144,000 were sealed. Uh, it says that uh, no one could number. No man could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And they worship God. And we're told in the last uh, verse of chapter 7, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the saints that were with the Lord. And then verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven trumpets who had, excuse me, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and the third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and the, and the third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. Amen. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we ask you to give us grace, Lord, to understand this passage, and we pray that you would open. 
believe in the concepts of all of history. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, Jesus our Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to this eighth chapter, and as the narrative builds and the two themes develop, we're trying to interpret this, and we now we, we see the seven seals open. And when the sixth seal was open, if you remember, that's when we saw the uh, judgment that fell upon the wicked in chapter 6, verse 12, where they cried out to the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of the Lamb. And they asked the question at the end of chapter 6, for the great day of his wrath has come and he is able to stand. Uh, chapter 6 shows us that by the sixth seal we've been taken up to judgment day. That's not what this is, okay? This is all the trouble that God's people have and the persecutions, the martyrs and all that. So these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, spoken of in this book, I might say. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Very important point, okay? Um, as we see them given white robes, well, how those robes get so white and clean by the blood of the Lamb. Generally, you know, blood stains. It's very hard if you ever cut yourself, you know, 
uh, and gotten blood on a shirt or on, uh, you know, ladies on a dress or something, you know, like, it's really hard to get it washed out. This is a case where blood cleanses, okay? This is the blood of Christ. There's no stain involved. It's a, the cleansing blood of Christ. And it's, it's praised by angels and men and sung by the redeemed church uh, from all ages, from the beginning until now. How precious is the blood of Christ. As you know the hymn, what can wash away my sin? You know the answer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, okay? Amen. The saints in heaven know that. By the way, this is a, you know, uh, this is a p picture of all the redeemed. And, um, you know, when you're reading the book of Revelation, you realize, wait a minute, I'm part of this, okay? You read it a little more carefully once you realize you're in it. Um, and these are the saints that are redeemed before God. So we have this picture of the church redeemed in chapter 7. And so we expect when the seventh seal is open. It should be the consummation of all things. Now, it seems that what we have going on, because we have this group of sevens. We start off with a uh, description of the seven spirits of God. And then we have the seven angels of the churches. And then we have the um, seven seals. And now, as the seventh seal is open, we find another seven emerges out of that. Later, we're going to see another seven emerges also with the seven bowls or vials uh, of God's last judgments that are poured out on the earth. So the question is, well, are these continuations? You know, you have these seven in history. Uh, the seven seals are open, and then you have seven more, and then you have seven more. Or is this a recount looking at the same thing now maybe from a different perspective? Most commentators believe, at least as the ones I've read, the older ones, that the um, seven trumpets are looking at the same thing we've seen just in the seven seals, but from a slightly different perspective. Uh, we've seen the, the judgments coming on the earth now. We see those things that particularly perhaps affect the church. Um, that's one way of looking at it. But let's just take it as it is. So the seventh seal is open. And now it, says, it starts off, it says, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Some have pointed out that when Constantine in 325 declared Christianity to be a religio licita, a legitimate religion in the Roman Empire, and began to shut pagan temples and to promote uh, Christianity, that there actually was in the churches peace. Remember when Saul of Tarsus became Paul by God's grace and he quit persecuting the saints, it says there was peace in the churches uh, for, for quite a while. So some believe this is a reference perhaps to uh, Constantine's coming to the throne and now persecution is ended because we've seen a lot of tumult prior to this well again trying to apply this to history is difficult uh, we can say like well if, if you remember I've mentioned this before and I'll reiterate it you have in prophecy you have fulfillment and application the fulfillment is sometimes difficult to determine the application shouldn't be Fulfillment, when we read this, is like, well, when is this? Is this something that happened uh, when Constantine came to the throne? Is this something yet future? Is this something past? Sometimes it's hard to say. This is a symbolic book, and we're trying to, by God's grace, use Scripture to interpret Scripture and determine what is being said here, because we do want to know what the fulfillment is. But if that is difficult for us, application shouldn't be. 
I mentioned uh, the virgin birth prophecy in Isaiah 7, that it was fulfilled 800 years later when Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. But when God gave that prophecy, originally it had immediate application to King Ahaz of Judah and the people living in his time and all the way up through until the coming of Christ. Then Christ was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, and that was the fulfillment. Matthew himself tells us that in Matthew chapter 1. After that, it has great application to us because theologically we can understand who Jesus is. He is God incarnate. He entered our humanity in a unique way. He is a descendant of Adam, but not by natural generation. And so uh, it seems Adam's sin has been imputed to those who are his descendants through natural generation. So Christ was conceived sinlessly. He was a true man, yet without sin. And that's why he was able to bear our sins on the cross. There's all types of applications and implications. And sometimes that's the wisest way to approach this. What do we learn about God's plan? What do we learn about Christ in this chapter? And if we can, because of the symbolism that's in it, discern behind those symbols what is the reality, then all the better if we can figure out the fulfillment. As I say, a lot of commentators have said this perhaps has to do with the cessation of persecution in the Roman Empire against the church for a little while. It's only a half hour. And so we see that. Others have said, and I, I'm kind of inclined, that uh, they stood in awe, the silence in heaven, uh, because of when the sixth seal was opened, because of everything that had been revealed prior to that. The, you know, the plan of God had been revealed, the redeemed or shown in chapter 6. And the church is there before God and it, there's a period of silence you know the Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence before him um, others have said that it's in silent admiration and awe in anticipation of what's getting ready to happen when the seven trumpets sound 1 Corinthians 14 8 says for if the trumpet give an uncertain sound who shall prepare himself to the battle well if the trumpet does give a clear sound because remember that's before they had radios they used trumpet blasts to tell the troops afar off here, you know, you need to go here, do that, or whatever. That's how they signal the troops. And so we're going to have seven trumpet blasts that do have something to say to us. Um, the Lord speaks after that half hour, at least as the word goes forth. Uh, we might have uh, Amos chapter 3, verse 8. It says, The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy. That is to speak forth God's word. And so the angels are there. They're getting ready. They're given seven trumpets. Uh, when he sees the seven angels, you wonder, who are these? And some have said, well, it could very well be the seven angels of the churches. You know, if you remember um, in the opening chapters uh, and also the addressing to the churches, it's always to the angel of the church. And that could mean the messenger. It could have been, some say that might have been the minister of the word there. Uh, others say, no, each, the churches have angels assigned to them. Christ speaks of the guardian angels that watch over the, the little ones. And he says they stand in the presence of God and their angels do always behold the face of the Father. So these seven angels, whoever they are, they were chosen to receive the seven trumpets. And another angel appears. And keep in mind, this is symbolism. Uh, but what John is seeing is portrayed as real before him. But you know we're seeing a symbolic expression of God's truth here. Another angel, which, and the word angel means messenger, having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. Literally, he stood upon the altar, but it, 
the, the Greek word epic can mean beside or at it. So he's there at the altar. And he was given much incense. So the altar is where the incense and the prayers of the saints are offered. Some have said this angel is a picture of Christ. He's referred to as the angel of the covenant in the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, if you want to look at it. Speaks of the coming Messiah and refers to him as the messenger of the covenant. Uh, the word messenger in Hebrew is melach. That's why Malachi, is, Malachi means my messenger. But that's also the word translated angel elsewhere in Hebrew. So this one comes, and it could very well be a picture of Christ. Because Christ is the one who offers the incense. He is the golden altar upon which our prayers are presented to God. He is the intercessor. And so this angel comes, and he's given a golden censer, beautiful and pure, and he stands at or upon the altar, and he was given much incense. It shows that the intercessory work, if we understand this to be of Christ, um, is without limit. He's given much incense. Our prayers are made acceptable because of Christ. Note that with it he should, that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. So there's our prayers and the prayers of all God's saints. This incense is there. It's now presented on the altar, the two things together. And it's a pretty good picture of Christ as our intercessor, that our prayers are offered through him. The incense is mixed and offered with the prayers, that sweet aroma before God's throne in heaven of the intercession of Christ. It causes our prayers to be acceptable and received by God. As John said, my little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, an advocate, paracletes, uh, it's the word translated comforter in, in John's gospel elsewhere. But a par- paracletes, Para means alongside, kaleo means to call along or to call. So one called alongside to comfort or to defend, to advocate. Uh, And so he says we have an advocate, we have a parakletes with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ is our advocate with the Father. So we have one in heaven who pleads for us, who prays for us, who hears us, and who presents our prayers. In Hebrews 7, 25, it says, Wherefore he, Christ, is able to save them to the uttermost. means forever and in every way. To save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ prays for us. In Romans chapter 8, when John, or excuse me, when Paul is talking about who can condemn God's elect, Christ died for them. He says, Who is he that condemneth? It's a good question. He doesn't say, oh, Jesus doesn't condemn. He says, he's the one. Who is he that condemneth? Jesus Christ. Christ has the authority to condemn. On the day of judgment, he will be the one who condemns. Who is he who that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. So the only person that has authority to condemn you, and I've mentioned this before, and it's important to remember that, The only person in the universe that has the authority to condemn you is Jesus Christ. And note how Paul describes him. The one that died. Why did he die? He died for you. So the only one that could condemn you died, and it wasn't accidental. He voluntarily died in your place and took your death and your hell. The one that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, 
He rose again for your justification, who was even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. The only one who can condemn you is pleading on your behalf. He's the one who presents that incense before God. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he presents the prayers of the saints. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So our prayers are offered, I believe the picture here, the symbolism pointing to the um, virtue of Christ's intercession, of his prayers for us. In verse 5 we read, And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. Now note, after the saints prayer, we saw this earlier, the saints under the altar, what were they doing in chapter 5? They're crying out to God, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? The saints pray. What happens after that? Toward the end of the chapter 5, what do we find? We find that the, uh, excuse me, 6, I believe it is, we find the wicked pleading for the rocks in the mountain to fall on them from the wrath of the Lamb, okay? From him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And so we see that prayers are answered. Prayers are offered, and then prayers are answered. The saints do rule the world by their prayers. The problem, and this, I don't mean this is an insult, okay? When you're dull and you're not thinking, you're in a stupor, okay? The problem is, and please don't be insulted because I'm going to say it in a way some people won't like it. Sometimes we're too stupid to understand that our prayers rule the world when we go to God. We look at all the garbage going on around us. Well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Really read your Bible. Read Revelation. Pray. It's the prayers of the saints that effect change. Once the prayers were offered, by the way, I don't think anyone here is stupid, okay? But sometimes we act a little bit like we are. We need to realize we can change the situations before us. It does involve activity in every realm, in the ecclesiastical, in the political, in the social, etc., all those. You've got to be involved. We have to do things. But, beloved, don't try to run a machine with no oil in it. All you're going to do is destroy it. When we pray, things change. When we call upon God, when we pray according to his will, it says in 1 John chapter 5, he hears us. And we look around, that, that has to do with God's preceptive will, what he said in his word. When we recognize, hey, that's not right, what they're doing. Then we can go to God and say, Father, bring this to an end. Help us, have mercy upon us. So the prayers of the saints are offered. And then the angel takes the censer, fills it with fire from the altar. After the prayers have been ascended before God, or have ascended, and threw it to the earth. He threw it to the earth. Literally threw it into the earth. In the Greek. gain is the Greek word for that. Uh, so he threw it there. And note, there's no longer silence now. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. A great upheaval took place. God said he was going to shake the heavens and the earth one more time. Uh, in the book of Revela- excuse me, book of Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of that. And so God is at work. The saints' are, prayers are received. Judgment begins to fall. 
So now it says this, so that the fire has been thrown to the earth. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Things are ready now. The saints have prayed. Their prayers have been received. And so now the angels are given authorization to begin to sound. And the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed. Mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. And so uh, we see this here now. A strange picture. Hail comes down with fire, kind of like when Egypt was judged, there was hail mingled with fire. And this was mingled with blood. So what is this a picture of? This is a symbol. Um, you know, the rain comes down, as, as it says in Isaiah 55, we just read it, the rain comes down and waters the earth. Rain is a good thing. Well, this is not a good thing. This is a judgment. Uh, we've seen that when God's word is rejected, judgment always follows and judgment comes in this case excuse me a third of the trees were burned up some believe these have to do these symbols are the early heresies that came out you know some one of the earliest ones we have gnosticism had to be dealt with um, but this is a judgment from god and when you know the truth is Held back, and by the way, the reason why I'm referring to doctrine now, when in Isaiah 55, when it talks about the rain comes down, the next thing God says, "So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth." God's word is like water, you know, to the thirsty, um, and so His word is like water. Where you have a corruption of the doctrines of, of the Bible, when you have a corruption of the gospel, it's not nurturing and life-giving well in this case hail and fire mingled with blood where you have theological error all kinds of horrible things happen hell seems to break loose on the earth you know we look at the atrocities of the 20th century we've talked about that where you have the um, rise of nazism in the 1920s and 30s and then you see the effects of it uh, at least the ending of it as a huge movement in the 1940s that came about as a theological error originally when the churches in Germany were moved to rationalism under the so-called enlightenment and uh, you have the various German theologians that began to reject the truth of scripture and deny the miraculous deny the supernatural because they were going to be scientific and so uh, all types of horrors, and you, you look at that and say, well, what was the result of that? Well, the result of that, you had one preacher's son named Frederick Nietzsche who came up with his idea of the Superman philosophy that were you, uh, if you believe evolution is true and the survival of the fittest is the governing principle in nature, well, then the highest good is not to serve God and to be kind to others. The highest good is to promote whatever is the strongest so that evolution can you know, reach its ultimate goal, whatever that may be seemed to be. And so Nietzsche taught that the idea of the Superman, you know, uh, this one who uh, the highest good and the goal is should be take what you can get and hold on to it. Well, that appealed to certain men like Adolf Hitler and others and the idea that, oh, well, let's see, who are the, who are the highest evolved humans and they looked in a mirror and said, well, it's got to be us. And that's where Arianism and the racist uh, ideals that go along with that. 
brought about the death, not of just six million Jews, but of about 56 million people throughout the world uh, because of their policies. It started as a theological error. Look at the uh, abortion murder in our country. That began as a theological error. How so? You know, if we hadn't had evolution taught in our schools, we wouldn't have abortion right now. Because when you teach children that they're basically meaningless in their existence, that they have as much meaning and purpose as the fuzz on a peach, eventually human life is devalued. And again, the idea of evolution comes in and Nietzsche's always in the background somewhere. And the idea that, well, we have too many people, etc. And, you know, so they begin murdering off what they consider to be unwanted people. Nothing different than what Hitler was doing. Uh, where did this come from? It came from a theological error, rejection of biblical truth. And so this fire and hail that comes down from heaven mingled with blood uh, could very well be a picture of heresies and errors coming into the world, into the church early on, some that have continued. Like I say, the fulfillment, we can say the rise of Arianism perhaps, uh, the rise of Gnosticism. There's a whole bunch of other early church heresies. But the application is pretty clear. Where you have error, you have blood. That is, wicked things happen. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. It's interesting, these come in thirds. And some have said, it's about how much of the church was affected by these early heresies. We have Arianism, about a third of the church was affected by it. By the way, Arianism, they were the Jehovah's Witnesses of the early church. They denied the true deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you had other doctrines of Nestorianism and things we've not even, Eutychianism, there's one I bet you haven't heard in a while, if ever, uh, Eutychianism. Uh, by the way, just so you know, that's the opposite of Nestorianism. And I'll let you look all these things up, okay? It's just basically trying to figure out who Jesus was, all right? So it was the denials of his being one person with two natures, or was he just one nature and maybe two persons, or they were trying to figure all this out. The Council of Nicaea and, and Chalcedon, uh, straightened a lot of that out because the men went back and said, what does the Bible teach and what did the earliest teachers tell us? So that's why we have the Nicene Creed that d declares, I believe, reflecting scripture that Jesus is true God of true God. But we have these heresies. So the second angel sounded. Oh, by the way, things that should nurture and feed, about a third of them were gone. Whether those are viewed as churches uh, or as teachings, uh, a third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up, so these had a devastating effect on, on the people. Uh, then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. Well, the sea is likened elsewhere to the masses of people on earth. So you have these false teachings coming in. A great mountain, this was something momentous. Some believe maybe this is the rise of the papacy when the Pope begins to claim that he's the vicar of Christ on earth. Uh, and declares that if you're not joined to him and under his authority, you can't be saved. And that was opposed all through the early church. You know, the, the idea of the Romanists that it wasn't until Martin Luther challenged it that it was challenged. No, no, no. Go back, read church history. The Pope was rebuked right and left from the beginning whenever he would, the Bishop of Rome, I should say, whenever he would make his uh, usurpations. Um, and he was called the Antichrist a long time before Luther ever called him that, just simply being rebuked by others. He was the uh, Bishop of Rome, and he began to make outrageous claims. Some believe something like that could be at view here. 
But again, a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea, literally it's creatures having souls, uh, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So the commerce is affected, if we understand this to be just a reference to things going on in history. Uh, but other you know, ships are the way that you travel. Some have said that ships could be a reference to you know, local churches. Good application, perhaps. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven. All right, if you remember the stars that were in the hands of the Lord, those were the uh, angels of the church. So now we see another star fall from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Rivers give life. If you notice, if you go back and look at history, you'll find cities are built, generally speaking, historically, on rivers. Find a great city somewhere, and you'll find that it's got a river by it, some source of water. That doesn't take a genius to figure that out, okay? Cities need water, and so you find rivers flowing through them. And so here we see this uh, third angel sounds, a star falls from heaven. And that's because rivers nurture. That's, if you have rivers, you can irrigate, you can grow fruit, you can have food, you can plant gardens. And the springs of water, those refresh. Well, a third of them now are destroyed by this. And we're told that the name of that star is Wormwood, bitter. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Most commentators apply this to Pelagius. These may be names of people you've never heard of or haven't heard much about. Pelagius was a fellow in England that rebuked Augustine because Augustine wrote uh, in one of his writings on baptism that the reason why he said we baptize our babies or children is because of original sin. They need that symbol of cleansing. Pelagius he was a monk in England, and he read Augustine's writing, took offense, and wrote and said to Augustine, How dare you say such a thing? Children don't have any sin. They don't have original sin. There's no such thing. Men are sinful by following bad examples. Interesting that 100% of humanity has done that. But Pelagius said, Man has a free will. His will is untouched by sin. So we can choose God or we can reject God. It's entirely up to man. This idea that our natures have been corrupted and we don't have free will and choice, why, that's just foolishness. That's evil. And so Augustine answered it. But Pelagianism swept through the Roman Empire. A lot of people said, yeah, that sounds right. A lot of the Germanic tribes bought into it. And Pelagian, uh, uh, his followers, or Pelagius' followers, rather, they persecuted the Orthodox. And so some have said that things that should have been good were made bitter. Now, the Pelagians confessed the Trinity, and they confessed the deity of Christ. But then they brought in and said, man is the one that determines his own destiny, not God. Well, that's very appealing to a person who's dead in trespasses and sins. Because, yeah, I'm in control. You know, I'm the captain of my own destiny, etc., uh, some have said that, as a matter of fact, it's interesting, most of the early commentators all pretty much to the, to the man say this is a, probably a reference to the spread of Pelagianism in the empire and the embittering of the means of grace by bringing in the exaltation of man in opposition to the grace of God who saves unworthy and helpless sinners by regenerating them. Uh, it's by his grace. So perhaps the application is, is that a third of the uh, uh, 
waters were made bitter. And then we, we, then we have then the fourth angel sounded. A third of the sun was struck. So the, the light that shines, something is being affected here. A third of the moon, often the church is referenced to that because it reflects the light of Christ. And a third of the stars, that would have to do perhaps symbolically with churches. Um, so that a third of them were darkened. So you start having heresy take over. It's interesting that we, we, we refer to the age after the fall of the Roman Empire as the Dark Ages. And it's pretty well recognized there was definitely an eclipse of some sort uh, of the truth. And, it, and there were Christians during that period, but in a very uh, severe minority. So then he says, and I looked... Oh, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise, and I said, dark times were coming. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of the heavens, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And we'll cover that in chapter 9. So there's a warning given. So these angels sound the trumpet. Now, it is interesting that when, the, you know, these are warnings that are given. The purpose of these are to bring people to repentance so that they would recognize God is displeased with the wickedness on the earth. And when you start having judgments fall from heaven upon the world, upon the earth, we need to take heed to it. The one difficulty that I have in looking at you, I go, how do you, I understand the application on this, okay? We can get the application for our day and age. So this has something to say to us here today and your day tomorrow and this coming week and the rest of your life. That's something to say to us as individuals, as families, as a church, and as part of God's people. So there's a lot going on. The exact fulfillment, I'm not absolutely certain all the commentators are correct. I'm not sure on these things. I do see in history eclipsing of the truth. I see embittering doctrines that came forth whether papal infallibility uh, or Pelagianism or some other heresies that corrupted, you know, the doctrine of sacramental salvation that was taught so thoroughly in the Middle Ages uh, and still is a plague to the church. The reason I say that, there's so much wickedness loose in the world today, it's kind of hard to say that, oh yeah, this was fulfilled back, you know, uh, 1,500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. It may be being fulfilled in our day. It's definitely applicable and maybe that's the key to this. Maybe we should be looking more on the application in each generation. But it's clear when the prayers of the saints are offered in heaven, the judgments of God begin to fall on the wicked. And it, this isn't a bad thing. His plan moves forward. Some of those people that were hardened sin sinners get shaken up by this. We'll see in the next uh, chapters that it does. some of God's judgments do bring people to repentance. They begin to turn from their wickedness. Uh, and so we see that. So God, God will shake things up. He's willing to shake nations. You know, I remember when I was a kid, many, many years ago, okay, I was very thankful that, you know, and I'd heard, well, we won World War II. We were a great nation. You know, we held communism in check. And the United States was the greatest nation on earth. I, I think it still is. But how much has changed? You know, it's like, where did my country go? What happened? And we see all these heresies. Everything we're experiencing in our nation has to do with theological errors. You can trace the apostasy from our Constitution, our national document, 
You can trace the turning away from that from the turning away from Scripture in the churches. And all through the, the 20th century, you had these, you know, neo-orthodoxy comes in claiming to be the new truth or the new way to set it forth. And when it's examined, it's like, no, nah, this is just the same old errors. It still has man at the center. Uh, one thing after another, heresies come in. We see all these, the neo-apostolic movement today, people claiming God will speak directly to you. You don't need the Bible, or you can use the Bible to check it out maybe, but you know, God will speak directly to you. And those impressions you have in your mind, well, that's God speaking to you. My Bible tells me the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. That, is the, that verse, by the way, is the death knell to the neo-apostolic movement. They have no doubt that what's popping into their head is the voice of God. Why do people buy into that? Because they have no confidence in the written word of God because they've been told you can't rely on the Bible. Every, every few years a new translation comes out. And I'm not against modern Bibles. Okay, I use one. But we have these Bibles that come out and they're, they're different. It's constantly changing. And you're told you need to build your life on the Bible. Really? Because that verse I used to trust in is no longer in the Bible that you gave me. Or that verse like in uh, Mark's Gospel where it says uh, Jesus moved with compassion. That's what the, all the Greek manuscripts except one corrupt one says. Moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, touched the leopard and said, I am willing to be cleansed. The latest editions of the NIV say Jesus moved with indignation. Used to be compassion. They changed it based on one thoroughly corrupted Greek manuscript. No editor of any Greek New Testament will put that reading in their editions. The NIV translators, they stuck it in the latest edition so they could sell Bibles. That's a different Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible has compassion when a leper comes to him and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was moved with compassion. So you have your Bible changes all the time, all right? And so people lose confidence in it. The doctrines of grace are not being taught, the doctrines of God's word. So we have this embittering of the truth come about. And what we need to do is make sure that we know the doctrines of the Bible from the Bible. We need, that's the application for us today. We need to know God's word. If you say, well, I don't know exactly when or how this was fulfilled. All right, you can still live your Christian life without knowing the exact historical fulfillment of this. But you need to know the application of it. We see these judgments fall from heaven. And things that were good, things that were life-giving are made bitter. We need to set forth the word of life. Okay, the bread of life is Christ. We need to offer our prayers to God. And by the way, these judgments are coming from the one who opened that seventh seal, Christ. So he's in control. This, isn't not, this is the revelation. It's not a hiding Christ is the one that opened the seventh seal. He's the one that equips the trump, trumpeters to trump. He's the one who is sending these judgments because he's accomplishing God's purpose on the earth. And he is merciful, but he is also just. So uh, may God give us grace as we meditate and think upon these things and see like, well, there's a lot of bitterness in the world. But praise God, it was just one third. Two thirds were spared, and that's by the grace of God. So let's do what Peter said to do, make our calling and election sure. So I don't want to be part of one of these heresies or these embittering things. I want to know the truth, and I want to love Christ and love God and love my neighbor as myself and love my brothers and sisters as Christ loved us. May God give us grace. May he bring this about. Let's pray. 
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We pray that you would have mercy upon us and guide us in the truth. Keep us, we pray, from error, from every embittering doctrine and practice, and lead us in the way everlasting, Lord, we pray. And all this we ask in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. And we have a closing hymn to sing.